AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome to yet another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, and oh my gosh, I'm about to board a plane. So I am uh, recording this very professionally at the Long Beach Airport <laughs> in some far-off corner, um, covering myself with a sweater. That's what my life has come to. So uh, I'm going to be in Seattle for a couple days, and I'm excited because I get to do some uh, fun interviews while I'm up there. Um, so yeah, be, be prepared for those when they come out. But that's not why you were here. You were here to hear a engaging conversation with someone who is involved in independent music and is doing the damn thing. And this person is a prime example of doing the damn thing. Astro Natalis, which I'm totally butchering the name of the actual artist. Like it's it's super professional, right? But anyways, Astro this is so sad, right? Astro Natalis. Can I like, please spit that out of my mouth? Anyways, he is an amazing, amazing hip hop artist from the Minneapolis area born and raised in Florida, but he's got his chops within the context of that independent hip-hop scene, which for those of you that pay attention to different styles of music, um, the parallels between independent hip-hop and like punk and hardcore, I mean, they're one and the same, you know, playing basement shows, you know, playing in front of nobody, all those common tropes that you you hear a lot of the guests on this show bring up all the time exactly happens within the context of independent hip hop as well. And so I want to, you know, stretch your boundaries. I mean, this guy is by no means a household name, but he's done Warp Tour a lot. He's been doing the damn thing. And the beautiful people at Side One Dummy Records have teamed up with him to release some of his music. So basically dive onto any streaming platform, get familiar with him on that level, and then listen to this interview because he shares some really, really fun stories about, like I said, Warp Tour, 
um, about his early days, about how weird Florida is. I mean, frankly, I think most people can agree with that. But some really, really fun and enlightening stories that uh, he shared while on the road currently. Um, so he's, uh, yeah, I was just really, really charmed by him. And I knew this was going to be a fun conversation. And uh, I'm excited to bring it to you. So we, we have got some sponsors on this show. Make sure to support Weebly, who uh, you'll hear more about in the middle of the show. Um, because it's just always exciting when people come through and are making sure that this show continues to roll. They support independent music. That's an, an amazing thing. So you support the sponsors, please. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go because I really feel weird just sitting in a corner of an airport and <laughs> trying to record this intro somewhat professionally. So, uh, yes, here is my conversation with Astronatalis, which, like I said, I'm probably butchering it. But, um, yeah, I just didn't do the phonics beforehand. <laughs> but it's a great conversation nonetheless. And uh, you'll be able to see how it's spelled in the actual podcast. So uh, I'm not too worried about that. But here we go. And I will talk to you after Hard to get your tasty fingertips, you dip into the glass, spin the ice. The heat is on the kettle now, we'll never settle down and Donald Nine ask for life. Let's put some steam and spin across the flanks of beams. I want to dance and shake the rathers and lights. Oh, John Law's gonna drag our asses through the streets when he slaps them cuffs on my hands. I want blisters. Blisters on my feet. I was aware of your name um, prior to you signing to Side One Dummy, um, just by like the connections with uh, sort of the Minneapolis scene, because obviously that's where you kind of you know were were raised. Um, but you see, the, the thing that struck me about you is that you seemed like a person who traveled through uh, many different, I guess, scenes and subcultures, where you kind of took all those things and put it into a pot and made up your own sort of unique vision of it. Um, am I correct in that kind of categorization or is that just something that, uh, was kind of by default because you've been influenced by all those things? No, I mean, I, I think that you're, it, it's pretty spot on. I mean, I came up, um, as sort of an indie kid and, but like, uh, and then got influenced to rap music and then found myself touring with punk bands and then, you know, got influenced pretty heavily by European like squatter techno culture. And yeah, so yeah, so yeah, it is sort of an odd amalgamation and i i think uh, honestly I, I because i my age and i came up um sort of in the kind of golden era in my opinion of skate videos the uh, spike jones sort of goldfish girl chocolate video beginning of the trans world era um that stuff was a huge influence on me in the way that i sort of accepted culture because those those videos were no longer about that's when skateboard boarding stopped being just like you know kind of a monoculture and started to really become super diverse. And so you'd watch those videos and it'd have people from all over the world skateboarding and you hear music where it would go from like a Polvo song to a three, six mafia song to a modest mouse song, you know, uh, to an awe tech song kind of kind of like, you know, in, in a period of 20 minutes. And so as a result, like I, I've always sort of just felt at home in a lot of different places and sort of taken what I needed and what I admired from each sort of scene and kind of built my own weird little, um, gumbo i suppose right i like gumbo is a very appropriate description um yeah because i do think there's something that's so interesting when you do open yourself up to obviously different genres of music and start to get influenced by things that aren't um i guess typical of maybe you know peers or other people that get into a certain subculture because you know whatever when you're 15 or 16 years old your vision towards music is so myopic where you're just like oh yeah i'm a hardcore kid and i can only listen to screaming music and everything else is shit and then you realize like oh wait maybe i should pay attention to other things because <laughs> there's yeah. more exciting stuff out there i feel so lucky looking back i mean i grew up in jacksonville florida which is like sort of like it's a 
it's a bit of a cultural desert in a lot of ways. But at the time, there was a really awesome and exciting kind of indie music scene. And it was sort of um, surprisingly and excitingly diverse. And I felt really lucky to have, despite the fact that I was a super hip-hop kid, like wearing winter camo and Wu-Tang shirts or whatever, like I had friends that introduced me to Modest Mouse in like 1997 and like was listening to K Records at the same time that I was listening to Grave Diggers and Mob Deep. And so, and, I, and I'm so thankful that I grew up in that culture that made it okay to not be like, you know, you know, kind of singularly focused. It, it was cooler to be kind of diverse in, in your understanding and scope, which is sort of a not, not a thing that most people would sort of expect or, under, or understand from a place like Jacksonville, Florida. Right, totally. Because they're, uh, I, I think it's interesting that you equate the, um, you know, you being obviously in a sort of uh, cultural desert, as you put it, would probably maybe open you up to having those sort of new experiences. And like, you know, if you lived in New York, you might be kind of, you know, more interested in staying in your lane as opposed to being like, hey, this is cool. I don't care if a band or an artist is coming through town, I'll check it out no matter what. Well, absolutely, because it, by and large, because <laughs> you don't have a lot of people to choose from, you don't have a lot of events to choose from, and so if anything sort of cool and like subculture-ish is happening, you just go to it because like you're like even if you're not a rap kid, you're like, well, I guess I go to this rap show because it's literally the only show going on in town, and you find yourself hanging out with people you wouldn't normally hang out with because there's not a lot of cool people, and so ultimately you get exposed to what they're into and and yeah I, I think that had i grown up maybe in a more um in a in a in a sort of a bigger buffet i probably would have focused on things you know sort of um, more singularly and said you know necessity kind of had me going all over the place and i'm really kind of super grateful for that right uh i want to focus on the you know you, you coming up in, in jacksonville so like what was your family structure like like mom and dad in the house brothers or sisters yeah, yeah, I sort of have a really ideal uh, family situation. My, my family, my immediate family, and I are super close. My parents are still together. I got an older brother and a younger brother, and and by and large, um, you know, my older brother is six years older than me, and he was he was like my 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 cultural ambassador. Um, he introduced me to the Clash when I was you know eight, and when everyone else was listening to MC Hammer and the New Kids on the Block, I was listening to Morrissey and the Clash. And then when I was you know eleven and thirteen. Uh, you know, I started listening to De La Soul and Lord Finesse and Big L and Wu Tang Clan, and got me into all that. And and sort of even before that, I was he we we grew up in we were in Maryland in the Baltimore area before I moved to Florida um, when I was young. When I was young, and he grew up around the kind of Baltimore the beginning stages of the Baltimore rave scene and the Be More Club scene. So I listened to a lot of that stuff as well too. And so I, I just worshipped my older brother, and so anything he would sort of passed down to me um you know became sort of gospel and so as a result like he was sort of feeding me everything and on top of that you know my folks my mom had me listening to bob dylan and van morrison and my dad had me listening to tons of old soul because he grew up going to college in southern georgia um and then my little brother eventually sort of when he became older he he kind of started pumping me full of a lot of he was really in a thrill jockey records and stuff like that and so he kind of pushed that you know kind of up to me so I, I, I was really kind of lucky to come in a really supportive and sort of um, culturally aware and, and excited family. Yeah, that's exciting because, yeah, you, you you definitely can't. I mean, all those influences you described, like are like you said, you, you feel lucky because those are not typical. Like, you know, you... no, no. These are like I, I really grew up in sort of a mythological family, like a thing that doesn't really exist anymore. And, and I, and, you know, I feel really lucky to have had that. I, I 
that will always that will I'll never stop being grateful for my family. They have given me so much. Right. No, that's cool. Well, what did your uh, mom and dad do uh, for work? My mother, uh, so, uh, sort of uh, kind of a roundup way. My father um, started out as a, he drove trains. We started out as the fireman on the train, which is sort of the assistant to the engineer. Mm-hmm. And he came up like um, driving uh, juice trains from Florida up to Sunnyside, uh, the Sunnyside Railway in, in New York and Queens doing that line back and forth and um over the course of probably 30 years um a little bit of a detour into the military uh he worked his way up to being uh an executive at amtrak and that's what moved us down to florida he's got a a promotion down there um my mother held down a lot of sort of odds and ends jobs you know but mostly was a housewife but um she for a long time was a photography teacher and a fine arts photographer okay Um, yeah and so i kind of grew up in a dark room uh, to a degree as well. And so, you know, my, uh, we moved down to Florida for, for my dad's job and, um, the Amtrak was kind of crumbling to pieces. And so he, he left Amtrak, um, after a year cause they sort of treated him like shit. And then they had him, wanted to move him again after they just relocated our family to Florida. A year later, they wanted him to move to Chicago and he was just like, nah, this is, this is done. So I, sort of one of, I think I really admire about my father is he was 47 years old in the middle of the tech explosion he had never sent an email in his life. He was like a you know old school businessman, and he quit his job with a kid in college and a kid on the way to college and a you know a kid in high school, and sort of you know evaporated his own retirement to sort of reinvent himself, but still keep his family you know fed and you know you know comfortable, and and like at, the, at that time completely reinvented himself and started a new career as a, a stockbroker with Morgan Stanley. And all of his coworkers were like 25, right? Uh, you know, it was, that's a young man's business. And he got in there and, and I mean, he works his ass off, absolutely works his ass off to, to support his family and to make that happen. And, and, and he, um, yeah, he's now after years and years of doing that and rising to sort of the top of that, he's, uh, I think maybe a year away from retirement, which is beautiful. My mother sort of reinvented herself as well and became a graphic designer. And again, was sort of like, um, a middle-aged lady working in a career surrounded by 20 year olds, um, because she sort of did the same thing. She went back to school and became a graphic designer. Um, that's sort of the name of a game of my family. I think everybody in my family has started out their lives as one thing and ended up in an entirely different place. Right. Well, it's really cool and inspiring. Cause obviously it's like, you know, pressing the reset button terrifies a lot of people, but then when they can like pivot and even though they may suck at it for a while, they realize like, well, if I just work hard at it, I'll eventually be okay. <laughs> yeah, I think, and honestly, I think my father doesn't totally appreciate how, how I don't know, brave that was. Really, like I think he did it just because it's you know he's just old school dad. You know, this is what I got to do. Like you know, I got to do this thing. And but I, as a really brave thing, I really I have a great deal of admiration for it. And I, and I think coming up in a family that sort of has no that is willing to sort of make those changes and pivots. Like I, I would be naive to think that that hasn't rubbed off on me as well too. Yeah, absolutely. I could, I could see that sort of direct through line you're speaking about. Um, the, uh, Florida obviously is a very weird state because I mean, it's the weirdest it's man. The, it's the weirdest. No one's fucking with us. We are the weirdest. Totally. Well, <laughs> try it, Arizona. You can't even come close, my man. Like none of them. It's yeah, true. Florida wins. It's true. It was like, did you kind of recognize that as uh, you know, a kid? And then like, once you started to kind of develop an identity in high school or was it always just kind of like, well, this is where I live. So this is what I know. Oh no, I had no clue. And I didn't even really have a clue. Um, 
when I left, I left and I moved to Texas, you know, to go to school, mm-hmm. which is still a pretty weird state. Right. And so I like, I, you know, I, I'm pretty much all my life up to that point. And before that, I lived uh, in kind of rural Maryland and outside of Baltimore, which is a weird place. And sort of I lived my entire life up until I think I was 25 below the Mason-Dixon line. Like I, I've been Southern, you know, and I, and I didn't really understand how weird Florida was until I started touring and traveling. Um, and everywhere is weird. Everywhere has got weirdos, but Florida is another level of, of weird. It's, and I think it has to do with our diversity of weird. It's not just like one culture that's weird. We have all of the weird cultures and it gets weird in different ways in different places, depending if you're on the beach or in the swamp or you're up North, which is the South, or if you're down South, which is the North, like it is a weird, it's a weird place. And I, I didn't fully understand that until I got to start to really see the rest of the world. Um, and ultimately, like I couldn't have gotten out of there fast enough when I when I graduated from high school. And now, having seen the rest of the world, seeing how fucking weird Florida is, um, I am really proud to be from there. Right. <laughs> like I went from really loathing that place and wanting to escape as quick as humanly possible, and then now, like after seeing the world and seeing Florida and seeing how fucking weird we are. And, how we'll eat your face at the drop of a fucking dime bag. Like (laughs) I have, I'm proud of my weird ass state. I'm proud to be from Florida. And I, 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 the older I get, the the harder I rep it. Right. It it is funny when you do have a distance from a lot of those things. Like I, I personally was born and raised in Las Vegas and like whatever I moved when I was like 10, but, um, and I, I myself am straight edge. Like I don't do drugs, don't drink. And so it's like, people are like, wait, what the fuck? Like you don't do any of that stuff and you were born in Vegas, but then it's like, I still, but I still, that the way that you speak about Florida is the way that I speak about, uh, you know, Nevada and Las Vegas where it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird ass city, but it has all of this charm. And yeah, like, like you said, the, the, the distance is, is able to help you kind of you know wear that badge wear that as a badge of honor yeah to be i mean to be perfectly honest it makes sense to me that you're straight edge coming from vegas right. <laughs> it seems like you would be straight edge because of being from vegas because totally. like, I, I like i was i was straight edge though i didn't even know the term straight edge i just didn't drink or do drugs or anything and basically until college really and it wasn't like out of any political motivation it was because my older brother was a dj and i grew up he would take me to clubs like when I was like 13 or whatever and I saw kids like the first time I went out to this like there's a sort of super legendary rave club in Florida called Simon's that he used to DJ the chill out room in when he was in college and he was sort of a big kind of hip-hop DJ around the University of Florida and, and North Florida in general and he would take me there to like kind of freestyle at the beginning and the end of the night when I was 13 just like rap for bouncers and shit and hang out and just kind of be a part of the scene which is a very cool older brother thing to do and I saw kids overdose on ecstasy and ghb like the first night that i went and i remember seeing that and like even when you see people on ecstasy and they're having the best time they look crazy right and especially like to a 13 year old there was nothing about that scene that made me go oh yeah man i want to do that like it made me go nope never no way right. and like I, you know i kind of came around college changed a lot for me and seeing the world changed a lot for me in regards to that but i was straight edge because of that and i would imagine it'd be much the same walking around vegas and seeing fucking idiots puke on their shoes like god damn it why would you ever want to be that person right why is that why is that appealing yeah yeah why, what what about any of the situation where adults are behaving like babies that makes me want to do this i'm trying to be an adult i don't want to be a baby anymore right no that's i i think it's very interesting the uh the observations that you were making in regards to that uh because obviously it's like in the um I think you and I are roughly around the same age. I'm like 35. And so like, I yeah. definitely remember the, uh, you know, once the, the news started to spread around, um, as far as the, the, you know, rave culture and that just being like, Oh, if your child goes to one rave, like they He's will, dead. they will die. Like he's dead. 
right. Dead, rest in peace. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And it was, it, I mean, obviously, you know, those anecdotal stories are true of what you're talking about, but like, I presume that your experience within kind of that culture was generally positive. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, that's why I kept going back. Like it didn't scare me so bad that I didn't want to go back. Like it was just like, you know, in the same way that like, you know, like yeah, you, when you're young and you see your, your uncle gets fucking wasted at a family picnic and it's embarrassing and weird to you as a kid and you don't totally understand what's going on. But, you know, it weirds you out about your uncle, but you you still hang out with your uncle, you right. know, like, you know, <laughs> and in the same way, like I would see this shit happen and my brother would sort of explain to me and he would be like, yeah, man, it's kind of fucked up, um, you know. And so I just kind of be like, well, yeah, it's kind of fucked up, but I still like watching my brother DJ and listening to rap music really loud. So this is sort of the deal, you know, and, the, and, and that was sort of like, um, and maybe this is another sort of, you know, result of growing up in Jacksonville, but in the same way that like when I first started rapping, I didn't tell anybody that I was rapping for two years. Like I did it totally in secret. And I told my older brother first and he took me to these things. And this is sort of how it started for me. Um, and because Jacksonville was like, um, I grew up like, make no mistake. I grew up very middle class, uh, and then eventually sort of upper middle class as my family kind of prospects increased. Um, but like down in the South, they do a thing called busing where they take kids from nice neighborhoods of public schools and bust them over to bad neighborhoods and they take kids from bad neighborhoods of public schools, bust them over to good neighborhoods, basically sort of forcing integration. And it's a kind of holdover from the era of forced integration. Um, and it's a, it ended up being a great thing because it exposed me to tons of, you know, different cultures, the Filipino culture from our Navy base and like the sort of like, you know, poor black culture from the, you know, the, the West side and areas around. And, and so I was, I, I was kind of removed from the monoculture of middle-class white suburbia. Um, and as a result, I met all these black kids and I got really into rap music and I got into battling. So I go to these battle, you know, these battle nights or whatever. And you have to go to crazy ass, insane jacksonville is has been and has always been the murder capital of florida you'd have to go to crazy neighborhoods that like if i was smarter i probably wouldn't go if my parents knew they definitely wouldn't let me go to go to the battle because i but it was dangerous it was uncomfortable i was one of the only white people there but ultimately i loved rap music so much that none of that shit mattered to me and so you know i it didn't bother me and watch the same sense like watching kids you know overdose on ecstasy or ghb or whatever it didn't bother me because I love rap music so much that all that's all of those things just seemed like kind of negligible. Mm -hmm. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a, a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. 
Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Did you, like, obviously, as you started to experience, um, you know, or experience expression of yourself via, you know, music, like you said, through through rapping, um, I presume that was kind of like in, in high school when you started to, um, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, like, take it more seriously? Uh, well, yes and no. I didn't really start. I never thought of, this is kind of a hard thing to explain sometimes, and I think, and, I, and rappers will crucify me for this. Um, but sure. I came up freestyling and battling. And freestyling and battling, and, and though I didn't really have this sort of language for it because I didn't have the kind of like nerdy art school creative language for it, but I, rapping and battling always just felt like um, a sport or a craft to me. Like, and and now like having even more objective kind of distance from it, it still it's even more so just feels like a sport or a craft. It's a skill. It's about being better than someone, being more clever, winning, and being sharper. And so. All I did for the first probably five or six years of rapping was freestyle and battle. And so it was more, it was never an artistic endeavor. It was a skill endeavor. It was a wit exercise. It was, um, it was a mind sport. And it wasn't until like the last year or two of high school that I started actually write lyrics um, because I was getting introduced to people um, like Company Flow's records started to come out, Anticon's records started to come out. Um, a year or two later, I heard the first Atmosphere records. I was listening to people like Most Def and De La Soul, and it was people that were putting, that were becoming a bit more like introspective and you know artistic in 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 a language that made sense to me as a white like suburban middle class skateboard idiot. And so it was around like the first probably five three to five years. It was not really an art form that I took seriously. It was a it was a, a tool it was a craft it was like learning karate or something right so i took it seriously as a sport i freestyled all day in my head but it was about like i would like i washed dishes at a pizza restaurant and then you stand in the dish pit and you just stare at a wall and while i was doing that like in my head i would just pick famous rappers and just battle them in my mind and figure out ways to make fun of them and pick kids at school other rappers that i was going to meet at school and battle them in like fictitious battle scenarios just to try to get better and i just freestyle all day long it wasn't until I got to college and I and I was I went to school for theater in, in Texas to be a director and a lighting designer. And then when I started to kind of be immersed in sort of a really like process over product, like arts culture, like a very like creative conservatory culture, that I started to kind of apply that 
learning to, to the craft of rap. And that's when I started to kind of take it more seriously as an art form. And that's when that I started to move away from battling and move more into songwriting and, and, and actual musicianship. Right. No, I've, I love the way that, that you envision that. Cause I mean, essentially <laughs> the way that you're describing it to me, to me, it sounds like, uh, it's like, that was like your debate team, you know, that was like, yeah, straight up. That was, that was my after school activity right. was rap for sure. It completely. And, and it was weird. Cause I, I had theater too. Like I was really into theater, but like theater isn't cool, <laughs> you know. Totally. The, theater doesn't make you cool. Theater makes you cool as theater kids. Right. But like I could battle and I could and like I kind of I was really good at it and I could I could fuck motherfuckers up and and, it, and that made me cool. Girls thought that was real cool. Of course. And so and like dudes thought that was real cool. And so for me that like I'm a I was a really shy kid growing up and I was a, kind of a wallflower. And this was like my ticket to cool. Theater was never going to be my ticket to cool. Theater was going to be like my safe place, you know, <laughs> like my fallback. But battling all of a sudden made me cool and girls like started to like me all of a sudden. Right. And so, yeah, that was yeah, that was sort of like, um, yeah, that was uh, I couldn't I couldn't land a 360 kickflip, but I could serve a motherfucker in a battle. So that <laughs> was like. You know, I couldn't surf that well, but I could serve a motherfucker. And so that was my cool. Right, right. Well, I like that. It's not like you uh, you can invite a girl to your local production of Our Town and be like, yo, this is no, totally, like, totally going to get. Yeah, you want me to run by this monologue from Julius Caesar? See how you feel? See yeah. how I nail my objectives, girl? Right. Like, yeah, that's not really, that's not getting you a prom date. No, not at all. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and I, I do like the way that you, uh, like you said, you kind of started to view the you shifted your view from the fact that uh, so many of these artists, because I mean, I definitely, I, I was working at an independent record store, late 90s, early 2000s. And that was when yeah, everything that you're describing, you know, from whatever anti-pop consortium, like all, all Anticon, like all of those labels that were so rich within the hip hop community that actually had substantial lyrics, as opposed to what everybody was looking at as far as like, oh, like all rappers talk about is, you know, bitches and hoes and guns. And it's like, no, there's this whole other scene that's doing really, really cool independent things um so that was yeah, really it, influential for it, you to be able to express yourself yeah it was i mean especially uh, man anticon and atmosphere and company flow like that it was and not all of these guys fall into that category but there was um there was a self-awareness and, and that that was arising out out of that and anything like uh, a lot you know particularly anticon those kids were all like white, lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class art school dropouts, which like I was a upper middle class white kid going to art school. Like it was like they were speaking in the language that I that I that I lived in. And so for the longest time, for the first time ever, I was there was rap music that was being made that I didn't have to be a tourist in. Like I love I love Wu-Tang Clan. I love Mob Deep. I love DITC. DITC is the reason I started rapping. Lord Finesse and Big L, the reason I started rapping. But I'm a tourist in those places. Like, I'm not, I have no, I can sit there and learn all the lyrics. I can know all the history. I can know everything about, I can tell you how to make cocaine. It doesn't make me a fucking crack dealer. And, but like, when Anticon came along, they were talking about like Guy de Babord and the Society of Spectacle and like, you know, referencing like, you know, Rauschenberg and things like this, things that I knew. And it was all of a sudden in my language that I didn't have to be a tourist in. 
Yeah, I really like how you, you express that because I, I definitely I have the same experience as you where I was raised in the suburbs. And it's like, you know, once once Dr. Dre's The Chronic and Snoop Dogg came out, you know, I was listening to it was like, whatever, 12, 13 years old. And I felt so hard. Yeah. But I'm like, yo, I'm a kid from like, yeah. what am I, I? There's no way I can aspire to be this. No, no. And especially at that era, too, like the whole sort of mantra of that era was the notion of keeping it real. And like for me, that like association was like really stark and clear that like if I'm going to keep it real, I can't pretend to be this. Like I'm not I can't pretend to be a gangster. That's not real. I'm not a gangster. Like me keeping it real is is art school and theater and like <laughs> my parents that love each other, you know, like like that sort of shit. And so like I couldn't when that when so when those people like people like Anticon started to come along and really sort of express these kind of totally different concepts and ideas, like that was just like a revelation to me for sure and really empowering for me you know to transition out of battle rapping and this sort of like kind of glass ceiling creatively that that is and into kind of the more far out stuff that i started to get into yeah no that's exciting um like so did you uh did you ever mess around like playing in bands yourself at all like in high school or were you basically just kind of focused obviously on the 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 freestyling aspect like you were mentioning never no and like so it was like and I, I, yeah, I, I was never in a band. And even when I first started making music, though I eventually started work with uh, some other people, like it was just me on a, it was right around this um, program Acid had come out, um, like Sonic Foundry's Acid. And it was like a kind of really rudimentary loop based um, production software. And I started just kind of sampling like Modest Mouse drum breaks or whatever and trying to make weirdo raps songs out of them and, and i was not doing a very good job and then i got introduced to a, a producer in denton texas named uh, Reraj, who was a dj and he started making stuff for me but like uh, there was never i never have been in a band until like two years ago when i was in when i was in a band with justin vernon ryan olson and john Kerry called jason feathers that was the first time i'd ever really been in a band and like honestly like i there's a reason i like i like having tyrannical control over things you know um i i don't like uh the negotiation of a band. Right. Um, and so I'm, and, and so, and maybe I would be more comfortable with the negotiation of a band had I grown up in bands, but you know, it's like growing up as a rapper is like growing up as an only child, you know, you sure. don't have to share, share your toys with anybody. So it's, it's hard to kind of switch out of that. Right. No, that's interesting. Cause I was actually going to ask you because it seems like obviously a lot of people have, um, you know, uh, wanted to collaborate with you in some capacity. Um, and so it's interesting you find that your first collaborative experience was like, oh, wow, like this was cool, but like this is so different and I need to get used to that idea. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and, like, and, and even when you like collaborate like on a song, it's such a different dynamic because if you're collaborating, because if I'm on someone else's song, then ultimately like I defer to them. There is a hierarchy that is established, you know, or if someone is coming on my song, then ultimately at the end of the day, if I don't like where it's going, I will tell them. And I'll be respectful and polite about it. And, you know, it's just like it's creative criticism. It's not like I'm not going to be a dick. The decision is mine. But when we were working on that project together, it was like, oh, there's something. There's four cooks in the kitchen. We all have a video on this thing. Um, and it, it ultimately, like, it ended up that creatively it was the easiest process in the world. The difficulty came when it came to, like, the like when are we going to put this album out what do we think of this album artwork like stuff like that like the making the record was still an easy process but ultimately at the end of the day like it was fun 
I enjoyed my little dalliance into the world of being in a band. And if we made another record, I would totally make another record of those guys. But yeah, I don't really, uh, I don't really want to be in bands. Right. <laughs> not my thing. That's right. cool. You guys can do that. Enjoy. I'm going to continue to enjoy, like, ultimately where the decision is mine. Right. And, like, I work with tons of people on my records. And their influence is valuable because this is why I have people, because I am not a trained musician. Like, so I need other people's input. Um, to make things work but at the end of the day the decision is mine and so that's that's a very valuable and important distinction right no i, I really like how you, you're able to uh, in your head delineate those two ideas because yeah some people um you know they don't work well by themselves like they need that you know that artistic foil to you know inspire them in some capacity but it's like it's nice that you can <laughs> you you can be on your own I can establish this, the guidelines in which I I prefer to work in, right? Which right. is sort of like I I use I have people involved when I need them, and at the end of the day, I, I make the decision, which is right. nice. I like it. Yeah, it's a good system. <laughs> um, so, what was your uh, what were your first kind of I guess touring experiences? Um, like, did, was that in uh, college or was that post college or where did that kind of land? Post college. Um, so, my best friend in college, which became my roommate. He and I started like uh, sort of just booking shows at this gay restaurant in Dallas because there's bands that were coming that wanted to come through, like rap groups that wanted to come through that weren't getting book shows. And I wanted to play shows and we can get people to book. So we just started booking shows in this weird place. And that sort of led us to be like, let's get to know people in the economy and ultimately um, introduced us to the guys in Atmosphere and this woman that was DJing, like opening up for Atmosphere. And she was also this woman named Adverse, DJ Adverse. She had kind of negotiated a little small little hip hop stage on the Warp Tour um, in 2003. And she was looking for acts to be on it. And I was about to graduate from school and my roommate, best friend, um, had been working as a computer aided draftsman for nine years and he was sick of his job and he was ready to quit his job. And so we both just sort of like decided like, Hey, let's go on the warp tour and give us a try. And if it works, then maybe we'll see what we can do with it. If not, then like whatever, we had a fun summer. And so 2003, I went on the Vans warp tour. I played probably two thirds of it. Um, I didn't get paid to play. I was just given a 30 minute time slot. Um, and then it was just like hustling CD sales to make it happen. And we slept in a Honda Element, and we lived off of the Wendy's value menu. And my best friend had saved up some money from his job. And that's sort of how we started, just kind of grinding it out and sweating it out um, on the Warp Tour. And that was the very first tour I ever did. And it was like the filthiest, grimiest experience ever. But that was 2003. Um, that guy who was my best friend is now my manager. And, um, yeah, we're still doing this right now nonstop. And, in fact, he's in the driver's seat right in front of me. <laughs> that uh, – I can't even wrap my head around because, like, I, I'm – you know, I, I, I did my fair share of touring. And I, I never did warp Tour. But it's like I can't even imagine – dropping you into that situation and uh, i can't even I, I'm, I'm surprised you survived it like that's insane especially because you're in doing it obviously in a car um and that's yep. uh that's oh, yeah. lo loading at 8, 8, 8 a.m and you, you drive for 12 hours and that's brutal and you would stay till 5 p.m selling cds because you try to have, you had to get enough cds to make gas money right. you drink a lot of monster energy drink um honestly like that's i I, I really learned so much as a performer. I did the Warped Tour. We did three 
years, um, or three or four or five, and because no one is there to see you. There's 20,000 people there, and none of them are there to see you. And so you're like a carnival bark man watching. And man, oh man, that's where I got my chops, like as a live performer, because no one knew about you if you put on a bad show. And it was amazing to watch as that tour went on, like in 05, of, like this acts on were on that and he he would get so frustrated because no one would watch him because he's you know big shit in fucking New York or wherever but he got on stage and no one give a damn about him um, and his anger and ultimately all these kids would just walk right by him and meanwhile me and like all my weirdo friends would just keep putting on the hell of a shit I think you said Eminem was having a problem getting people over I can't I didn't hear where, what artist you were saying uh, uh, was, was no 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 I was talking about Immortal Technique this rapper Immortal Technique he was on the tour in 05 he gets super frustrated because he's you know kind of big time in New York City or whatever but no one cared about him you know when you're playing Albuquerque at 2pm on a, at a punk festival and he would get really frustrated because there's you know, 20,000 people you go and get over your pride to do those warp tour shows and really just hustle and it's a it's a carnival job, and, and I, I, I'm really glad I did it for those three years. I don't have the energy to do it ever again, but I'm really glad I did it for those three years because I really earned like learned my my chops as a performer. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Check it out. I want to tell you about an amazing new sponsor called Weebly. It's a cute little name, right? But you know that idea that you've had in your head for like years and years and years and you've just never done anything with it? You're like, oh, I'll get around to it. I'll sign up for a, a, a Tumblr or I'll, I'll do it this way. Just forget all that. Act now. So Weebly is the amazing professional quality website builder or blog or online store 
And that is why I want to tell you how easy it is to get started with Weebly. It was created for people with the courage to start their own business and dream to be their own boss. I mean, I'm technically my own boss here, so I get exactly what they're talking about. And you don't need to be a web designer. You don't need to know anything in regards to coding, you know, proper alignment, HTML, all that sort of stuff in order to make your website look awesome and professional and impress everybody. Like, you know, if you showed your mom this website, you'd be like, whoa, oh my gosh, son or daughter, you've done a great thing. And it brings your idea to life. And then you could drag and drop to quickly build and publish your site. It's super duper easy. I played around with it and I love it. I very well be maybe changing my own personal website to Weebly. Yeah, I'm still playing around with it, but I love their services. It's super, super easy. And you can customize and update it anytime on any device. It's pretty impressive. You're on the go. You're on your, your phone. You can handle it that way. So anyways, what you need to do is fantastic websites should not get in the way of your dreams. Join over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free. Weebly.com slash words. That is W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash words. W-O-R-D-S. So seriously, do it up. There's no reason for you to not try this. You know, you've you've maybe seen what's out there, but let me tell you, Weebly is the real deal. Weebly.com slash words. Now, on with the show. As you uh, as you started to obviously get your touring chops and started to kind of figure out what you uh, were doing, like was obviously was that the aspiration? Was it like okay, well now I'm going to be a rapper and now I'm going to put out records and this is what I'm going to do? Or was there something else that you were uh, obviously trying to build on? I mean, we, yeah, I mean that was sort of the aspiration, but like we really, you know, when you start doing this, you don't really even know what you're doing or what you want. You look at like. You know, when you start playing out and you're playing for 10 people, you see someone play for 100 people and you think, oh, man, they've made it, you know, like, you know, and, and you think that that's the goal. And at the time, that's the goal. And then you play for 100 people and you see someone that plays for 300 people and you think, oh, man, they've made it, you know, and and ultimately you don't really ever have a like I, I look at like where I'm at now and I look back at what I was daydreaming about when I first started touring and like I. I am so far past what I could possibly, you know, come up with in my wildest imagination when I was sleeping in a Honda, you know, now. And even still, like, I don't, I'm not, <laughs> I'm barely, I'm bare, you know, I pay my bills, but I'm not like, I'm not rich or famous, you know? Like, you don't really have a guideline or a trajectory. You just start to have people you wish you were, you know? Um, and that's, you sort of kind of try to make them, you try to just kind of fumble your way drunkenly as close as you can to, you know, what, you know, the person that you wish you were and not even necessarily creatively, but you know, like for us, like the model, the business model, essentially that we didn't even know it really was atmosphere. We saw what atmosphere was doing. And we're like, that's what I want to do. Um, and that was sort of it. And that was about as, as smart and as savvy as it got. Right. It was, uh, as long as a blueprint somewhat exists before you, it's like, okay, we can follow that. Like, we don't know where the end date is, but like, we'll follow it. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like the, the business equivalent of like seeing a kid walk into school with a cool new pair of shoes you've ever seen and been like, yeah, I want those shoes. Like, and then like going to the mall and getting them or like, that's about it. Like, that's about as much thought as it was. It was like, yeah, we want that. And now over years and years, you start to kind of you either learn or you don't. You learn how to get closer to that. You learn how to, you know, the things that push you further away from that. 
and you know you figure out your system um, and slowly but surely and then like you know eventually after years you realize like yeah there are things about that that I want but I don't want exactly that there are other things that are more important to me and so I will then you start cherry picking like I want that from you know what atmosphere has in this way I don't want this one Tegan and Sarah has in this way I don't want this what insane clown posse has in this way and like and you sort of kind of build your your business model out of sort of cherry picking everybody else's good ideas right right um, kind of going back to your your uh, experience on obviously Warp Tour and then obviously the subsequent touring that you've done, you've very rarely toured with an artist that would make sense from a musical perspective where it's like, oh, yeah, like you'll fit right in. The audience will love you immediately. You've had to play against some kind of, you know, adversarial audiences, maybe not like hating you, but you've had to prove yourself to them. Is that kind of the space you like to be in or is it is it more fun when you can just kind of step right in and be like, OK, I generally speaking know that people will roughly enjoy what I'm doing up here? I mean, it's a, well, first of all, I've definitely played for some audiences that are hating me. Um, <laughs> Um, well, what's the what's the what, what's the worst experience that you that, that you can I guess kind of remember from uh, just you know either a show perspective or obviously the tour where it was just like oh yeah like it was a fun tour headlining band was great but like the audience just just didn't didn't care for me. Well, there's two like two sort of like okay so we did that first Warp tour in '03 and then from that like Brock my my manager sort of scrapped together like a <laughs> the world's the world's spottiest like nationwide tour that was like 16 dates you know but like seven days off in oregon and three days off in maine and we're playing troy new york and like because it was we worked with all the contacts we had and the first show on that tour was in kansas city kansas city and we i got on stage and i opened the show by freestyling and there was like 50 people there i was freestyling and everyone was like this is awesome people were so into it i was killing it it's like cool i'm gonna play a song and I played my first song, and over the course of that song, all 50 people left the club room and went into the bar room. <laughs> like, and that was my first show of our own tour we booked. And it was like, oh boy, <laughs> we made a terrible mistake. Um, and then the one that sort of like was even more daunting than that, I think, too, was the first. Tegan and Sarah took me on tour in Europe, and it was like the first like real like man like real real tour I'd ever been on. And and I went like you know the day before for playing from eight people in an art gallery in Little Rock, Arkansas, to playing a show that had been sold out in London at Shepherd's Bush, like, for months. And I opened up my set, and in Shepherd's Bush, is sort of like a, it's an old opera house, so you can see everyone in the audience. The audience is, like, on top of you, stacked up four stories high. And it's all, like, you know, it's seen at Sarah, so it's all, like, 25-year-old, like, good girls. And I, first song on the show, I come out there, and I have my laptop, and I'm by myself, and I hit the space bar, and a beat starts playing, and I just jump down into the crowd, and the entire crowd just recoils in terror. And man, oh man, you haven't lived if you haven't seen 2,000, you know, 20-something lesbian girls recoil in terror. And I thought, like, this is my first show with them. And I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be a long tour. And fortunately, over the, their fans are amazing. And their fans, like, learned my music. And the word spread. And by the end of the tour, we were killing it. It was great. And they warmed up to me so nicely. And they were really wonderful. And have become such a devoted part of my fan base. But that seeing that in that moment was like they have made a terrible mistake. What am I doing here? Right. Um, yeah, those are the two that come to mind for sure. But like, I, yeah, it answered your question. Yeah, I do like being the odd man out. I first started playing on that first tour, that spotty ass first tour. We had a lot of rap shows, and it became very clear to me early on that like rappers didn't like what I was bringing, and I was never going to give rappers, rap fans, what they wanted. 
And so I just sort of, you know, very quickly myself and, and my manager were both just like, yeah, let's just not play rap shows. We do so much better when we play for punk kids at the, on the war tour. And so it became sort of a concerted effort, um, to not play rap shows. But then on top of that, like we just didn't turn down shows. And so if the show was with a, you know, you know, fucking klezmer band then we would take it like we didn't care if it was a show if there was people going to be there then we would take it we didn't turn down shows and so it was never really like a an issue of like well is this a good fit it was like oh is this a show (laughs) or is there a sound system and there's people and you can give us free beer like then that's cool and we'll make this and then ultimately like you figure out how to make the show work um and if you know some set of songs aren't working then you switch switch the flow up if they want to hear you talk more, then you talk more. If they want to hear you rap more, then you rap more. If they want to hear you freestyle, then you freestyle. You just try to make it work. And you become, and so ultimately you become more of an entertainer, um, you know, than a musician at times. And that, and I don't say that in a negative sense. Like I, I a lot of times feel more like an entertainer. That it doesn't just sort of start and stop with the songs for me. And I, and I like that. I, I enjoy being entertaining. I'm a ham. I like it. I like making people happy. Right. Well, hey, you did theater in high school, so of course you have to be. Yes. This is part of my bones, man, for sure. Right. Um, and that actually segues perfectly into a question that uh, I was I was going to ask in regards to, um, I mean, I think now because of the massive popularity of obviously a musical like Hamilton and everybody being so enamored with, um, you know, the, uh, the the freestyling that goes on with the, uh, I'm totally blanking on the dude's name, the Justin, whoever the, the main guy is in, um, mm-hmm. in Hamilton. But now it's like, you know, more freestyle is becoming even more mainstream to where, you know, your grandma would know what that means. Um, is it, uh, what sort of relationship obviously, uh, do you have with freestyling now? Because I know a lot of people, I mean, you built your chops based on that, but I'm sure there's kind of a, uh, I guess kind of like a parlor trick oh, <laughs> el- yeah. element to it. So like, is it kind of a weird thing where you're just like, I'm not going to be your like clown because you want me to freestyle right now it's like you know i just feel i feel it must be weird for a person like you to kind of uh be able to know when to say no and know when to say yes on that sort of stuff it took a while to figure that out and like i have gone through like ebbs and flows and like it's been a weird like long marriage to freestyling and there's a period where i was just over it um i was over getting suggested the same topics and it's kind of freestyling about the same thing and it just became because it's now it's not like um i've been doing it for God, since I was 13, so I've been doing it for over 20 years now, and now it's just like a, it's a thing that's like a this is the second language to me. And so the challenge was no longer technical, and so there's a period where I really kind of got bored with it, and I tried to figure out different ways to kind of change the sort of you know shift the sort of paradigm on it to make the challenge creative instead of technical, because the all that being said, like for as frustrating as it can be, as much as you can feel like a dancing monkey, there are times when it really transcends itself and it can be, you know, transcends itself in an entertaining way or transcends itself in a really artistic and creative and emotionally exciting way. And so I'm really sort of, we've been like in the last few years really chasing that dragon and figuring out sort of weird ways to sort of shift things. And the first kind of foray into it came um, when I did a, a CD, a little EP called Dang where I woke up every morning for seven days and I, and I freestyled about what I dreamt about the night before. And it was just sort of like a tiptoe into like, how can we change the way people think about this and how can we change the way I feel about this? And, and that was like a kind of a, a really kind of a bigger success than I ever imagined. Um, and, and I, but still like, 
think I got to a point where I, I don't, I don't really, I, though I still freestyle probably almost every night. I, if I don't feel like freestyling, I just won't do it. Um, if it's just not in my heart, I won't do it. Um, because I, don't, I just don't want it to be bad. And I still end up probably freestyling probably two thirds of the time, but you know, I don't want to be that. I don't want it just to be a part of the trick. Um, but I still, I've kind of grown back into loving it at the same time that I've sort of fallen back into love with rap and just rapping in general. And so I've started to really enjoy it again. Um, and that's sort of a, there's a lot that goes into that, but like, um, yeah, it's kind of an up and down relationship. And, I don't know if you saw, but like last year, I, um, for the Eau Claire's Music Festival in, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I, I did a sort of performance art piece that was, um, we built a church with a confessional booth in it, and people would come in and confess their sins, and I would freestyle like absolution back to them. Um, and that was all sort of part of that sort of ongoing process that I, I find myself in where I'm trying to um, do more with it as a tool, because I... Uh, honestly, like most people just use it as a parlor trick. And though the stuff they're doing in Hamilton is, um, you know, it is interesting. It is bringing it to a wider audience. It is still sort of just, um, it's just juggling. It's, it's swallowing a sword. And, and, and so it's not, not that wildly impressive. Um, and, I, and I think that it can be more. Um, and so I, I feel personally just on a quest to kind of try to push it in into more and there are people that are out there that are doing that i mean like uh idea for sure before he passes really kind of pushing boundaries on that um with you know having full bands and sort of doing treating it more like jazz improv as opposed to theater improv you know which is more generally focused on being clever and jazz improv is you know sort of more like a kind of raw artistic expression Right. No, I, I really like your. I like the way you've described it because basically, essentially, you're looking at at freestyle as as a tool in your arsenal, as opposed to the uh, it, the only instrument you know how to play. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think like there's a sort of. I think the delineation between it being, it's just a it's a it's it's mostly just used to be clever. And while clever is fun and clever is entertaining, I don't think clever is art. Um, and and I think that there is a way to push that tool. I wanted to specifically ask you about something, um, and you can obviously speak about it in generalities too. But in the um, you you were on one of my favorite podcasts of all time, like Radio Lab, and you were brought uh, you were brought in um, to uh, was it, you did like a, a color themed rap, if I'm not mistaken. Well, they asked so they asked a bunch of bands to do covers of songs about color. And everyone was sort of doing like painted black and sort of kind of easy. I don't know. So it felt like easy things to me. And I decided that I wanted to do cover Wiz Khalifa's song Black and Yellow, um, but do it in the exact opposite direction of the Wiz Khalifa version and make it the prettiest, prettiest possible thing that I could ever make. And so I had my friend Rickolas play piano and then uh, a woman named Erica come in and, and play strings on it and turn what is just like a was at the time a gigantic club hit. Um, and turned it into like a beautiful sort of melancholy ballad. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like too you like to put yourself in these situations that are um, going to basically expand either not only obviously your fan base, but then just basically expand your own um, limits on what a person would be properly defined as as far as a rapper is concerned. You know, it's like most people would be like, oh yeah, really popper, popular public radio show slash podcast, like. Yeah, of course we'll have a rapper on it. It's like that doesn't make it wouldn't make any immediate sense, but I'm sure for you it was like, oh, this is an exciting opportunity. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, and, and uh, you know, and again, it's maybe this is sort of like part of coming up super DIY, but like 
You just don't turn down things. <laughs> like, I've done interviews, like, I've done interviews for high school newspapers. Like, I, you don't turn down things. Because ultimately, like, it all, you know, though it may just be a sort of drop in the ocean, it is still a drop, you know? And people in sort of my career trajectory, we don't like have the luxury, luxury of turning down things. And so when it's something like, you know, that isn't obviously a no brainer. Like that's a huge radio lab and that's a huge opportunity, but like by and large, like I'm not really in the business of turning down much. Like I'll do every interview. I'll do all of them. Like it's, and it's, and it's not like a, I'm excited that some one person is excited about me, you know? And so for me, yeah, the radio lab thing is a thing that almost no one would turn down, especially anybody that's an indie musician or uh, someone that listens to NPR every day like myself. You would never turn that down. Um, but, you know, Radio Lab, Schmedio Lab, like, I, if, uh, especially at that time, like, I, well, really turned down much. Cause right. It's all an opportunity, you know? Um, small or large, they're all opportunities. Right, and, so, and I'm not in the position. I don't have the luxurious position to be like, no, I'm just going to do one interview with Rolling Stone, and that's the only bit that I'll talk about my album. Like, nah, please interview me, Rolling Stone. <laughs> like, totally. <laughs> You'll take it all, man. If you're, I, I mean, I, I like that attitude because I, I do think that there is a, um, uh, as long as obviously it's not like so repetitive to where it's just like, okay, you're getting asked the same questions over and over. Then it's like, okay, well, that that you know that is maybe a fruitless endeavor, but it's like. I think the enthusiasm that obviously it's shown through you um, shows the, not only the dedication to your craft, but just the fact that it's like, I'm, I'm still excited about what I'm doing and I'd like to share that excitement with other people. Well, I mean, you do get, I do get asked the same questions over and over and it's super annoying and super frustrating, but ultimately like the way I look at it too is like, this is my job. <laughs> like, am I going to like bitch and moan about this? Like I, I, I'm not I used to hammer sheet metal like that's not my job anymore like that's like and those dudes that I worked with got up every morning and hammered sheet metal and almost never really complained about their job because it was a good job for them like this is my job like am I gonna really bitch and moan about like having to do interviews like yeah it sucks but at the end of the day like it sucks to be asked how I came up with my name a thousand times it's right. super annoying but it's more annoying because I'm just disappointed that so many people are bad at their job um, but like at the end of the day, I'll do the interview. I don't give a crap because, you know, whether this person is good at their job or not, whether they decided to interview me because they wanted to or they're interviewing me because their boss is making them. Like regardless, someone thought that what I had to say is a value and someone is going to see that that hasn't seen my name before. And I think that that's super important. Um, and that's just it's part of the job. Like if you're going to be a professional, like at anything like if you're gonna do the job do the fucking job if you're right. gonna hammer sheet metal hammer the fuck out of the sheet metal if you're gonna be a musician then do the fucking job and do it well and, and like try to do it your best and so that's I don't know I just feel like that's that's the MO that myself and, and my manager have sort of brought to everything that we've done and and it, I'm just uh, heaven help me if I just become a lazy fucking snobby asshole about this <laughs> shit because it is a I am lucky to get to do this full time for years now like right. i'm lucky and yeah. so i don't have the right to bitch and moan. totally yeah you want it, it i mean ultimately it's it's showing up and being engaged and it's like okay well maybe this isn't the most ideal opportunity but and maybe this person like you said sucks at their job and they're asking the same questions but you know i'm gonna make the best of it because like you said it's your job <laughs> yeah i mean it's exactly and it's like you know i can whine about it at all but at the end of the day i'm still gonna do it um because it's my job and this is like 
my, you know, my dad put on a suit every day and he got up and he drove through hellish traffic in Washington, D.C. to go do his job. I'm not doing any of that. I'm not getting up in the snow. I'm not delivering mail. I'm making rap music. Right. <laughs> like, you know, like, so like, this is all, this is very important to just sort of keep that in perspective at the end of the day. And that's one of the reasons that, man, I try to put on a good show every night. I try to be nice to everybody. I try to answer stuff on Facebook. I try to do all of these things because at the end of the day, like, man, fuck bands that don't do that shit. Fuck bands that put on bad shows. Like, you fucking asshole. Like, like you're such a snob. You're such a jerk. Like, you're so ungrateful for what you have. Like, I, I write off bands so quickly when they put on bad shows. It just annoys the hell out of me because a band that puts on a bad show, you know, technical difficulties and outside sources aside, like, they're clearly just there to take fans money and that sucks like and you know like even in the worst situations i try my best to put on a good show i try i try to like suffer through the pain and make it happen and still be entertaining because it's my job and at the end of the day my job is the best job in the world and so i i can't i can't really complain about it uh the last thing i want to hit on was the um uh, because obviously you've kind of pulled from so many sort of diverse fan bases and, uh, you know, you've never done, uh, like you said, this sort of typical uh, rappers uh, shows and all that sort of stuff. You know, who, um, I presume the people that show up to your shows, it's just this weird, like you said, you know, like we joked about at the beginning, like this weird gumbo of people. Um, or do you notice that it's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's leaning more towards this particular uh, scene. Like, you know, oh, okay, I, I guess I'm popular within the, you know, whatever, the punk scene or whatever. Like those kids are showing up um do you see any sort of common themes within your fan base funny enough in a lot of ways and though it is slowly starting to shift as i'm getting sort of uh, more attention from you know press in general um but by and large like the demographics of my fan base are different from region to region and i think that it's very reflective of whoever got a hold of my music first in that town and so, like, if the first people that really got into my music in that town, you know, if, if it were the first person that heard my music in that town was some punk kid and, and introduced all his punk friends, the crowd tends to be a little bit more punk than normal. And, you know, with sort of a smattering of rap kids and nerdy white dudes and just general weirdos and some hipsters, like, it, it tends to be a bit more punk. But if it's like, you know, the people that first found my music tend to be rappers then the crowd tends to be a bit more rap. And that's like, it's sort of that way all over. Even going into Europe, you can sort of see breakdown by breakdown where, you know, how the demographics go. Um, it is sort of changing and becoming a bit more just general wash of, you know, kind of indie spectrum. But yeah, there, I think that the demographics of a particular show are generally determined by who got a hold of it first and then, you know, then sort of laid the groundwork for the word of mouth to begin. Because for the longest time, any sort of, fan base i had anywhere it was just word of mouth that's interesting i like that that sort of the uh the first responder will be yeah. who you're who, who's showing up to your show at that particular patient account. zero right. yeah, yeah the, they've been infected first so they're spreading the virus yeah, <laughs> from there on slowly out. spreading it that's good this is good this please let's continue to compare compare me to a virus yeah <laughs> that's good of get, course get the, mar- get the marketing team on it right totally yeah there's there's a new marketing sticker uh-huh <laughs> i'm the zika rap game zika virus <laughs> that's cool actually i think that's targeted towards uh mothers and their uh un- yeah. unborn children so maybe yeah maybe we can yeah, look yeah. at a different name but still. Well, we're trying to find 
let's try to find one of those good viruses. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it, it's fair. That is very relevant currently. So I get why you'd mention that. <laughs> yeah, I try to stay topical. <laughs> totally. Well, dude, I really honestly appreciate you hanging out on the uh, on the, the the road and on Skype. I uh, this was fun for me. I definitely enjoyed your perspective on a lot of stuff. Me and you both, man. Thanks for asking really interesting questions. Okay, right? Cool conversation. It was. Um, I'm always nervous when I get pitched a person to come on the show, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know, I, because you know, I, if I don't, if I've never met this person, or you know, I get pitched by a PR person that uh, you know maybe isn't that familiar with the show, but that's not the case for this one. Because uh, Jamie Coletta, shout out to you, Side One Dummy PR. Um, I know a lot of people speak highly of her, and uh, I will as well. So she was the one who brought me this idea, and I was like, yeah, I, you know what, I really dig this. I like this. So uh, let's do this, and I was so glad I did, and it was, uh, I feel like I got a new friend. So please support the show by using the Amazon affiliate code. I know I bug you every week about it, but please do it. Basically, in the show notes of this particular podcast, you can click on the link, save the link to your phone, to your desktop, whatever it is you're using to do your Amazon shopping, and we, the show, get a kickback, and it helps the engine run as smoothly as it should, because after all, recording intros and outros at an airport is definitely a smooth running show. Oh my gosh. Anyways, so um, yeah, please be safe, everybody. And uh, next week, we're, we're really, really right on, almost on top of the four-year anniversary of the show. And I can't believe I've been doing this for four years. It's, uh, it's actually weird because it's like almost reflective of how long my son has been alive. Basically, I did this or I started doing this version of the show about a year after he was born. He's five years old and the show's four. So anyways... Thank you very much for listening. And like I said earlier, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.